Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Florida Atlantic University's Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute. 2021 marks the 50th anniversary of FAU Harbor Branch's relentless pursuit of ocean science for a better world. Located in Fort Pierce, Florida, FAU Harbor Branch's cutting-edge research focuses on five major areas, marine ecosystem conservation, aquaculture, the connection between ocean and human health, technological innovation, and national defense. During my time at Harbor Branch as part of the undergraduate Semester by the Sea program, I learned so much about the ocean and what it takes to become a good scientist. The programs and opportunities offered at Harbor Branch have continued to swell since. To learn more and how you can get involved, please visit fau.edu slash hboi. That's fau.edu slash hboi. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question. Have you watched the documentary about sponges? It's absorbing. Why are sea sponges good at statistics? They understand correlations. My guest today is Dr. Andia Ponegro Chavez. She is a professor of biology at Florida Atlantic University. Her research sponges and their interactions on reefs. In today's fascinating conversation, Andia shares her story of falling in love with the ocean in Colombia and wanting to know the name of everything on a snorkeling trip and how she ultimately ended up in the States. We chat about how sponges are important members of the reef building and maintenance crew, how most of the color you see on reefs are in fact sponges, the importance of following your own path, and so much more. Andia's enthusiasm and passion for her work is absolutely contagious, so you're in for a treat. Please enjoy. Andia, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today. Hi, Kara. Thank you so much. So you grew up in Colombia, and you actually ended up getting your undergrad in marine biology. Did you know growing up, like, this is absolutely what you wanted to do? Yes, I grew up in Colombia, and when I was nine years old, actually, I wanted to be heart surgeon, pediatric mm. heart surgeon. I had that very clear uh, because there was a cousin that had a little little kid that had uh, Down syndrome, and mm. she had a couple of surgeries, and I was very interested why and all of that. So my mom explained to me, and I was like, this is what I want to be. But I got very sick when I was 11, and I was hospitalized for a night. And I think that night it was hell to me. And after that, I never wanted to come back to a hospital. Mm. <laughs> so when I was like 12, I told my mom, mom, you know what? I do, would love to be a surgeon, but I cannot stand the environment of the hospital. It's mm. too rough and the stress of people. And so I told my mom, I think I wanted to be a marine biologist or an artist. That was the, the two options. And I had the first opportunity to snorkel 
in the Caribbean at mm. age 13, it was marvelous. I was like, what is all of this? And nobody could tell me the names of everything that was underwater. So I was like, why people don't know this? You know, so for me, it was like swimming in a beautiful garden and nobody knew exactly. Everybody knew the fish species, mm -hmm. but nobody knew exactly what was attached to the bottom. Mm -hmm. And that surprised me. And then when I was 15, I went to this ecotourist trip in the jungle in Colombia to a river. It's called the, the River of the Seven Colors. This plant is a plant, but it looks like an algae. But the plant grows underwater seasonally, and uh, it has all seven colors. It's like a rainbow, and it's absolutely fantastic. It changed through the season from mm. red to very fuchsias and blues, and it's amazing and somebody in that trip hand me an underwater camera to record a little bit the algae we call it the algae but it was it's a plant and I was like going through through it and I realized yeah this is what I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a marine biologist so I think that couple of of you know events in my life took me to decide to be a marine biologist yeah that's fine so really quick you kept kind of being like we kept calling it algae, but it's a plant. Could you describe the difference between an algae and a plant? Okay, so the plants is an angiosperm, so they produce flowers and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they reproduce through spores. So it's like the plants that you have in your backyard or around here in the soil. They have the same, kind of the same uh, reproductive and the same kind of cells. So the plant cells have a wall and they have the chloroplast and uh, they have a specific structures. Algaes are kind of some way ancestors from the plants. They appear on earth before the plants appear, but they do not reproduce specifically through flowers they have other structures, some of them, you know, like we have microalgae, macroalgae, so microalgae, they kind of are asexual, so their reproduction is like they divide their cells, and by dividing their own cells, they produce more. Mm -hmm. uh, so some algae does that, and also they have other structures around their cells, and they have like thicker walls, and their way they reproduce and the way they grow is slightly different. And so we have green algae, brown algae, red algae, and it's because they have different elements that give them different colors and that's associated to how the cells work. But yeah, that's uh, yeah. in a simple, simple way. That's it. It's like they are more primitive than plants and angiosperms, which are the flowering plants. Okay. Thank you for the distinction. <laughs> <laughs> so you ended up going to university in Colombia as well. And like I mentioned earlier, you majored in marine biology and you went straight on for your master's. Did you know when you graduated undergrad, like you absolutely wanted to get your master's and kind of keep going? Yeah. So it was funny when I was finishing my undergrad in the program in Colombia, we all had to do an honors thesis. Mm -hmm. So when I started my honors thesis, initially I was working with birds uh, mm -hmm. I was an ornithologist first, <laughs> but I always was very interested in the marine sponges. I have read a couple of books, and specifically, uh, I was very interested in the sponges that could kill corals. 
And I was like, how a sponge kill a coral? I was fascinated by that question. But there were not many professors studying sponges at the university. Mm. However, through ornithology, I ended up getting connected with a master's student that was working with marine sponges, and specifically these sponges, excavating coral excavating sponges. So as an undergrad, I decided to join them as a volunteer. So I started joining the research as a volunteer because I was very curious. And I ended up working, switching from ornithology to marine sponges and coral reefs. And as I was working there, this student advisor saw my interest and he got some funding. So he told me after I was finishing my undergrad, before finishing my undergrad, he said, I have some funding that you would like to continue researching, you know, marine sponges, excavating sponges for and join the masters. And I'm like, yes, definitely. So it was more the type of research I was doing. So I rushed to finish my honors thesis, wrote everything in a month, submitted. I had to give a presentation and defend it as an honors. And I joined immediately the master's program, but it was because the opportunity was there on something I was working and it was offered to me. Amazing. I really love that you were doing something totally different. You were doing ornithology and studying birds. And then Mm -hmm. that kind of just opened up that door to something else that you were kind of interested in and just seemed like it snowballed from there. Yeah. And it's really funny because this master's student, you know, I was honors, he was a master's. He had been an ornithologist before, Mm. uh, but his hobby still was ornithology as he was working with excavating sponges. And I ended up in uh, ornithology for a project, and then I got like an internship, and we were developing this foundation in Santa Marta in the Caribbean with the students and people. And just in a lunch, you know, like I sit down with him to to talk to him, and I ask him, what is your master's thesis about? And he said, coral excavating sponges. And I was like, what? You know, like one of that serendipity moments when you're like... How is that possible? But you are working with birds too. And he was like, yeah, no. And he's like, how much do you know about excavating sponges? I'm like, I've been fascinated about this since my second year in in college, where I had to learn about invertebrates and sponges were the first group. And I couldn't believe they were animals. So because they look like plants. So I got really interested and I gave a presentation on coral excavating sponges. So he realized I had read a bunch of papers and he was like, oh my goodness, really? Are you interested in working volunteer? You know, I'm like, yes. <laughs> I was just in a lunch. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. You never know. You never know when opportunities like that are going to come out. I love that so much. That's what you ended up studying for your master's thesis then is your coral excavating sponges. Yeah. So for my honors thesis, I did chemical ecology of mm-hmm. coral excavating sponges, I work with three different species that are a Caribbean species uh, in two locations in Colombia, one close to Cartagena, it's in the Rosario Islands, and um, the other ones were in San Andres Island, which is a kind of South uh, West Caribbean close to Nicaragua. And um, and then for my masters, I expand on one of the species. I select one. It's an orange boring sponge. In the species is Cleonat bellitrix, and I uh, focus all my my master's thesis on that one. And 
the, the increase of these species in relation to sewage pollution and on San Andres Island. I also did a little bit of chemical ecology and trying to understand what are the mechanisms of the sponge to kill the coral polyps. So I did mm. histology and then I did a lot of quantifications on interactions. So we wanted to know how much the sponges, when they are in interaction with corals, how long it takes for the sponge to kill the coral and take over the whole coral colony. So I will put little nails in the interface and take photographs and we will follow them over six months in a year and follow up and calculate what, what was the rate of growth laterally, but also inside of the coral colony. I decide to use these bike spikes, you know, bicycles mm-hmm. spikes, so mm-hmm. I could see how much from the inside without breaking the whole coral colony. So I will push them all the way to the maximum. And then when I will come back in six months, I will put them even, you know, check how much they could go inside. And with that, I was measuring the kind of the rate of growth in a vertical way. It was very interesting. Yeah. So you were actually pushing these bicycle spikes into... Into the sponges. But inside, because the sponge is already on the coral colony and they are excavating, they are making like caverns inside of the coral colony. They are digesting the calcium carbonate with uh, two enzymes. So they use enzymatic reactions to acidify the calcium carbonate. And with that, they bore into. So they calcified kind of the coral and then they send tissues, uh, filaments. and, uh, And with the filaments of tissue, they get like the coral polyps on their back, I call like under. So, you know, coral polyps on the surface, they have their tentacles and they have these filaments and that tentacles and filaments, they have a lot of nidoblast, which are type of cells that are defensive cells. They have right. like little arrows and touch them. They will sting. But that's on the surface. But when they are in, inside of the calcium carbonate, they have the rest of their tissue and the rest of the organisms there. So what the sponge does is that it doesn't come too close to the tentacles, but there is like a, a little barrier in between both of them. Usually urchins eat around. So the sponge doesn't get close on the surface, but instead when it's close enough, it sends filaments under and then it takes the polyps from the back. So from inside the calcium carbonate, which is very interesting. And then it kills in that way. It takes polyp by polyp under. That is wild to think about. I mean, you look at sponges, right? And they look fairly inert underwater, right? They just look like this beautiful blobs underwater and but like for them to actively be and they kind of just look like they're filtering the water but for them to actively be like hello coral and now I will dig you out and eat you (laughs) yes that's crazy that's that's what it fascinated me it's not all the sponges as I'm saying you know it's like we have some species and they are called coral excavating sponges they are mostly from the genus Cleona, Aca and Aca in the Caribbean, we do have at least 14 species of Cleona. Okay. They, they do tend to prefer to settle on corals. They are a very small percentage of the sponges. There are more okay. sponges that grow differently that they don't necessarily damage the coral. Yeah. But I was fascinated by these ones because it's like how on earth they take over the coral colony. So that's what fascinated me and took me to study them from my honors, my master's, 
and later on my PhD too. Yeah. So you took some time between your master's and your PhD. Did you know that you wanted to take like some time off and kind of get out in the field a little bit more? Or are you just like, I definitely don't want to get my PhD and I'm going to take this time. So when I finished my master's, I was absolutely fascinated. I had found a great research team Mm -hmm. in which I was the only female, actually, at that time. It was a bunch of males. I was the young young girl (laughs) in the team. But my mentor, my mentors, because it was both our PI and the graduate students were super nice and I was learning so much and I was absolutely passionate. So I wanted to continue my PhD right away. But my supervisor in Colombia told me, okay, and yeah, I think we have given you everything we have here. And mm-hmm. I think you have, you need to go out and you need to get more experience in other places where there are other resources, more techniques. And my suggestion is that you go out of Colombia and also Mm. that you improve your English. So I was able to understand English, like reading papers and all of that, but I didn't speak English at all. Mm. So he told me, why don't you try to go out and get your PhD uh, outside? So I did debate about like, it is the PhD the right thing to do? So I started looking for what kind of jobs I wanted to, to do, you know? Mm-hmm. And all these fascinating jobs, like I, I remember looking online through the coral list and other list servers that were for marine biologists around the globe and in the Caribbean. I was like, okay, what kind of job? And I remember seeing one that was for uh, the Galapagos Island. And Mm. it was like to be a scientist on the Galapagos Islands. And it requires a PhD. Then I saw other one and it was also, you required a PhD. So I realized, you know what? All the jobs I kind of really want to do one day requires a PhD. And on the other side, I thought, I maybe would like to become a professor and come back to Colombia and do the same that my mentor did back there, because mm-hmm. if he wouldn't going out of Colombia, got his PhD and brought back the knowledge and everything, I probably wouldn't have that opportunity and that mentor in Colombia. Right. So right. I felt really passionate about that. Like, okay, maybe I go out and come back. So I start my application, but it took a while, not because I wanted it took a while. So I had to study more English and start looking for opportunities outside. And it took me a couple of years. But in the meanwhile, I was able to get a summer fellowship, the Smithsonian in Panama, Mm -hmm. uh, Smithsonian Tropical Marine Station. So I went there. I spent three months of summer fellow and I keep building it up. So it was a hard road to get into (laughs) The PhD, especially getting the English level that I needed to get into the program, the resources, and I needed a scholarship because I didn't have funding or support. So I just spent two years contacting every single opportunity, building up and sending applications with a lot of rejections, but I was like, it's going to come, it's going to come. So finally, the opportunity opened, yeah. Yeah, and keeping the faith. You ended up getting your PhD at Nova Southeastern University in Florida. Was that like a top choice for you? Or was it just they had like a program that you really enjoyed or a professor that was studying the question that you wanted to answer? Okay, so this is another interesting situations in life. So I initially actually started my PhD in Canada. Oh, 
So in through my applications and desperation in Colombia of like, I need to go out of here. I really want to do my PhD outside. I ended up applying for a scholarship in Alberta and I got into Alberta, University of Alberta in mm -hmm. Edmonton, Canada. Mm -hmm. So I started there working with an advisor on deep sea sponge reefs. But through the process, I realized that was not the best fit for me. <laughs> mm. The advisor, her way of mentoring was not aligned with what I had experienced before. And it was very rough with students. And I got to a point where I was like, if I stay here, I'm never going to become who I should become. I it just it was probably one of the hardest situations in my life mm -hmm. because I realized I was felt exploded in some way and that I was not getting the direction and I was starting to hate what I was doing mm. and I was so passionate and I've been so loving of the ocean I realized this is not the way to go and from nowhere I had this conference I came to a conference to Fort Lauderdale mm -hmm. Was it a choral conference? It was a choral conference, yeah. And I was presenting things from my previous work in Colombia. Mm. And during one of the lunch times, again, another lunch, <laughs> a professor from NSU who actually was before a Harbor Branch researcher okay. and who I met at Harbor Branch as a summer intern. So this is another funny connection. Mm -hmm. When I was a master's student in Colombia, I came to Harbor Branch to work with Dr. Shirley Pampani as okay. a summer intern. So I spent three months in Harbor Branch. But this professor, he at that point was a researcher also. He works with Dr. Pampani to um, collaborate with her, but his office was very close to mine and we ended up chatting a lot and his student became my friend. So I ended up in that group all that summer. Uh, so when I came to that conference, he asked me, hey, how are things going with your PhD? I'm like, I actually need, think I need to move out from there and transfer. I don't think it's the best environment for me. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm actually looking for a PhD student. Do you want to transfer to my lab? And I was like, what? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, I remember you from working that three months. You were the student that worked the hardest. You gave an excellent presentation. And I definitely know your work, your hard work. And I will take you right away if you want to transfer. As I was being with another advisor, I didn't know this professor has, you know, keep check on me how hard I was working or anything like that. Right. So it was very interesting. So I said, yes. Definitely. And he also worked with the sponges. So I discussed with him what I wanted to do, which was more genetics of these excavating sponges in the Caribbean and everything kind of aligned. So I transferred my PhD from Alberta to NSU. And that's how I ended up there. So it was just kind of some way to meant to be. <laughs> yeah, that's mm -hmm. so funny. Yeah, I love that you touched on your summer at Harbor Branch. So this is in between your master's and your PhD. Mm -hmm. And when you were like applying and trying to get all of your experience. So Harbor Branch was one of the places that you had applied to. Yeah, I still was a graduate student and I applied okay. before I finished my, my master's. I okay. was here for three months and actually... The research I did here became one of my chapters or complemented one of my chapters from my master's, which was mm. really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's nice always to get the experience, but especially when your experience already augments the work that you're doing, that's 
double win. Yeah. And then from there, I kind of working with Shirley, I developed this mentor-mentee relationship forever. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the years pass. And even as I move from one side to the other one, I always contact Shirley, ask her for advice, ask her for you know, different things, research, we would discuss research and we end up working in a project. So when I went to NSU, I became a graduate research assistant for a project that was the Periphera Tree of Life. It was on understanding mm-hmm. the um, relationship, phylogenetic relationship or evolutive relationships among sponges. Yeah. And it was funny because it was a big project that involved different labs in the U.S. and Shirley Pomponi was one of them. Yeah, I feel like she's got her fingers in a lot of sponge work. I see her name everywhere. Yes, but I end up working there and doing a lot of genetics work for that project. Yeah. The Tree of Life, it was kind of categorizing the different sponges and it's based on not just physical characteristics, but like these genetics that you were talking about. Yes. So we will use genes. At that point, we used some nuclear genes and um, we were trying to characterize them and differentiate the species but also evaluating at the family levels, you know, like you have species, genus, families, orders, class, and phylums. Mm -hmm. So at which level there were the connections, which species belong to which ones, because the morphological characteristics in sponges to define a species sometimes are very convoluted or complicated in the sense that they may overlap. So Mm -hmm. for example, the externally sponges can look very different, but when you check their internal morphologies, is the same or very similar. So sponges tend to grow, and we call like they have a lot of morphological plasticity, which means mm-hmm. the same species in one environment can be, for example, all pink and very branchy, but the same species in a different environment turns gray and is not branchy. So when you go to these different environments, you think they are different species, but then when you evaluate the skeletons, they are the same. So that is when the genetics or molecular work is helping us to evaluate these kind of problems uh, that we have. Yeah. In my head, I'm like, okay, like you kind of imagine like bright and pink and, and then like branching out and then versus kind of like a cylindrical shape and gray and I'm like picturing people, right? Like if you put people in different situations, they look totally different, right? So like, so you put somebody in, you know, a cold, dark climate in the middle of winter and they're going to look very different than if you like encounter them out on the boat in the middle of summer, right? So it's it's kind of similar. So that's what we say, you know, this morphological plasticity, which not only sponges have it, a lot of organisms have it. And is that, depending on the environmental conditions. So for example, food supplies or light, that's Mm -hmm. most important, can affect how they grow. And it's the same Mm -hmm. with human populations, you know, it's different. You will grow very different if you don't have enough food and you don't have enough light that if you do. So that's it. But in some species, it's so radical that you're like, oh my goodness. So, and there's so many that is species and and the way they could maybe um, change that sometimes that's difficult so so that's why defining a sponge is not as easier as other organisms that you can see and you're like okay it has two eyes four legs that are important characters here you don't have that so it's a little bit difficult Yeah. yeah that's so funny to think about 
So your PhD at Nova went a little bit better and you ended up staying and finishing there. What was the, were you focusing primarily just on the genetics? So I work on four different aspects for my PhD. The first one was about the reproduction of mm. these excavating sponges because I was very curious to see as these corals were dying, I wanted to see if their reproduction cycle or like spawning events were happening, correlating with the bleaching events and mortality events of corals. So usually in marine invertebrates, as the temperature increase, their sperms and oocytes, everything develops. So sponges don't have reproductive organs. They have aggregation of cells. And when it's time to reproduce, what they do is that they transform their regular cells, like they have coanocytes to filtrate the water, and they have other cells to feed, you know, they have archaeocytes, and they have different names, all of these cells, but all these regular cells that help in their everyday function start transforming into reproductive cells. So they basically transform into sperm, or eggs, sometimes sponges can have their sex separated, so you can have females and males, but there is always a percentage in the population that are what we call hermaphrodites, which mm -hmm. are sponges that can have both eggs and sperms in the same individuals, <laughs> which is really interesting. Other species can be hermaphrodites, majority, the ones I was studying, I had a percentage of hermaphrodites, but majority were females or males. So I was tracking down these and see at what time the sperm and the eggs were ready to be released for fertilization and when the larvae will be attaching to these corals. And if that moment was correlated with the moment in which majority of corals were affected by bleaching and mortality. So that's with one aspect, and I always find really interesting. Yeah. Um, a second aspect was on the recruitment per se. So the recruitment, we defined recruitment as what when the larvae is able to attach, for example, to the coral, then it settles there and then survives and is able to grow. Then it becomes a recruit, and that's what we call recruitment. Mm. So these little recruits or babies are attached to the sponges. And I wanted to evaluate if they were attaching on areas on the corals that were already dead. For example, a fish by the coral and then the larvae finds that spot. Or the coral had a disease, for example, white disease or a black spot. And if it was where the sponges were attaching like on diseases, or like where exactly? So I did another chapter trying to track back from the recruits where they were attaching. And then I work on genetics, another one, which was around the whole Caribbean Sea. And I was trying to understand the patterns of dispersal and how much the populations were connected, you know? Mm -hmm. So you expect that if the population is growing, because they are healthy and there is a lot of substratum, like dead corals to attach, this population is kind of expanding and it has a lot of diversity and there are certain connectivity levels there. So I did a chapter on that. And the last chapter was on a model, mathematical model, where I kind of put a lot of the information that I have learned through my undergrad, master's and PhD. So I put this model in which I uh, wanted to use to see how much 
coral colonies will be taken by sponges over time in a 15 year period and in a century year period. So I use mathematical modeling based on the research that I have. So on empirical data, all the measurements I did through my masters and basically model it for a century. And that was the whole dissertation. It had like four chapters, each of them in totally different areas. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's like really, I mean, you covered a lot. That's a big PhD program. So I'm curious, you mentioned like the dispersal of the eggs and sperm and kind of Caribbean wide. Were you finding like a lot of the same genetics kind of spread throughout the Caribbean or was there just like really stark differences between like where you were? So I found that the locations I selected in the Caribbean were a little bit spread out. So I had locations Mm -hmm. in Curacao, Colombia, Panama, Belize, and then I had the Bahamas and mm-hmm. Florida. But in Florida, I did a more uh, like a little bit of a close up into the area. Mm-hmm. And I had areas where I collected small samples from dry tortugas all the mm-hmm. way to Fort Lauderdale, Denia Beach, mm-hmm. so all the keys up. And it was very interesting to see like I, the Caribbean level, each of that locations was kind of separated its own population with certain levels of connectivity, very, very low. But between the Bahamas and Florida, there was a lot of connectivity. And within Florida, along the Florida current Mm -hmm. and the Gulf Stream, Mm -hmm. there was a connectivity towards the north, like 50% of the migrants that I found, you know, like a migrant is, for example, I found an individual in Fort Lauderdale that has the genetics of the population like in dry tortugas. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I know that individuals belongs, you know, probabilities that belongs to the dry tortugas, but is found alone there in Fort Lauderdale. So mm-hmm. that becomes a migrant. So I count how many of that ones mismatches, you know, with their populations are. And I realized 50% of migrants were going from south to north, but then I had other 50% mm. from north to south. And it's very interesting because the Florida currents is a pretty strong current, but close to the coast, we have these little eddies that is like counter currents that form like circles and bring back from north to south. So I found that all the locations that were a little bit more deeper and further away from the coast tended to have that northern kind of migrants. Whereas the ones that were very, very close to the coast had the southern migrants. So you could see there how the the role of the currents is so important for the spread of the larvae. That's so fun to think about. You know, the physical ocean characteristics interacting with the biological ones. I love it. How it all relates. Very cool. So at Harbor Branch, I mean, you have so much research just at Harbor Branch that you're kind of covering your asking a lot of questions in your lab. A couple of things that really stood out to me, you're covering white plague disease, which I mean, just diseases in corals right now are kind of a huge concern. And then I'm really curious also about you're studying the impacts of hurricanes in the coral reef sponge communities in St. Thomas. So there was Hurricane Irma and Maria. Were they both category fives when they hit? Yes. That was an unprecedented event, just having one of them category five at that strength, right. hitting straight into the island. And it was even more unprecedented having 10 days later, I think it was about 10 days later, another one that just passed again 
on top, not the totally the center, you know, the center of the hurricane passed through Puerto Rico, yeah. which is western of the of San Thomas and that area of the Virgin Islands. But it was very, very on top, like in almost the middle, you know, the eye of the hurricane. Irma, the eye did pass across the Virgin Islands, very on the islands, totally. But actually, Maria's eye crossed San Croix more than St. Thomas. That was, that was. So the first one hit more directly St. Thomas than San Croix. Both are U.S. Virgin Islands. Mm-hmm. And Maria hit more St. Croix. So, so, yes, so that research on the hurricanes and also the disease one, I did it in the Virgin Islands. I started that research as a postdoctoral fellow in the Virgin mm-hmm. Islands. Yeah. And then it continued and I continue collaborating with all, um, you know, the PIs there and other PIs in a couple of other universities. And then we expanded to the genetics also to understand how the resilience of these sponge populations is happening. And if the, the recruits, the little babies are coming after the hurricanes, if they are coming from outsider populations or the same population, you know, like some sponges can break and clone and reattach and maybe they are all growing as clones. So we had all of that questions with the resilience that currently we are writing those papers. So you start projects and sometimes they take a couple of years until you finally have all the analysis done and written. That's one of the research I'm working on it. I also have an honors student working with me on the recruitment of the sponges. In a sense, we were doing experiments in which we were clearing up algae. So after hurricanes, it's very common to have these algae blooms. Mm-hmm. So we clear up some areas and we quantified all the sponges. We checked the corals, you know, and there were other teams doing also fish. So we had a big team evaluating all levels, but... Our focus was the sponges, and um, we evaluated how much of the new babies are able to attach into this substratum that has been scraped in some way by the hurricane, you know, because the hurricanes kind of like smash a little bit the substratum and see how much the recruitment will be favored or not. If the algae were present, if the sponges are present or not. Okay. So kind of backing up a little bit, these hurricanes roar through and like we always see the impacts on land, right? Especially category five in the islands. I mean, it was truly devastating. They destroyed buildings, homes, trees. I mean, boats were thrown around like it was very serious. And a lot of people don't think about what goes on underwater. But Uh underwater gets wrecked, too, because there's a lot of wave action that happens. I mean, especially category five winds just turning these waves up and these shallow water reefs are not... They're great buffers for wave action when the waves are not enormous and super powerful. So when that happens, they also are affected. Yes, exactly. So we said coral reefs are also useful to, in some way, decrease the effect of the storms on the beaches and on land. Mm-hmm. But by doing that, uh, they receive a lot of that powerful waves and water movement. And uh, corals can get dislodged, like they can detach. Mm-hmm. And sponges too. So a lot of studies have been focused on the corals, of course, but we don't have that many studies on sponges. So that's what mm-hmm. we were trying to understand because after storms, it's very common to find a lot of pieces of sponges on the beach. Like even sometimes mm-hmm. you, you just walk on the beach and you find sponges, skeletons. So we wanted to know like how much the sponges are affected and how fast is the recovery. Mm-hmm. 
of these communities. So yes, and underwater is, is very interesting how the water gets really cloudy and how all the conditions usually help uh, algae to bloom and the algae blooms on top of corals, on top of sponges, on top of everything. And that also can kill, you know, the, the organism. Right. So what were you finding within these communities? And have you, I'm assuming you've gone back and kind of did like a baseline survey. Have you been going back and checking? This was in 2017, right? 2017, Irma and Maria, September 2017. And then uh, we did start the research immediately. We were able, <laughs> which was November of that year, November mm-hmm. 2017. The island was pretty destroyed in many ways and mm-hmm. the university center too there. So one of the PIs was able to help us and submit because we didn't have internet with nothing. So my PI and other two PIs, they discussed what it would be a good idea to put a, a project together and, and they were able to get funded at the time. Mm-hmm. And I came to help and play the role of like collecting all of this data and organizing students to help us. And we use a scientific cruise, a boat from the University of Miami. And we did four cruises from 2017, 2018, and 19. Mm-hmm. So all the way 17 to 19. And we were able to monitor the progress and changes. We are still writing a lot of that data because, you know, it was hurricane, hurricane. Uh, we did this and then pandemic. So <laughs> <laughs> if you are on an island for people there, it's been really, really tough and a lot of changes happening. But Actually, I'm presenting these results, some of the results, in two weeks in a conference, the Benthic Ecology Meeting. Mm-hmm. These ones are on the recruitment data of the first year monitoring, in which when you can measure if the recruitment is mostly happening through larvae or if the recruitment is happening maybe by reattachment. So we have different ways to measure because we put these quadrants underwater and measure all the sponges and the volumes. We knew which ones were the babies, the little ones. And then by checking the same quadrants over time, we knew which ones were the new ones that Mm -hmm. arrived a year later. So we wait for a whole year for reproduction to occur because it's Mm -hmm. usually through the year and based on temperature most of the time. We thought at some point that the recovery would be by fragments. So that is kind of the same fragments attaching. But what we find out actually is that it's mostly by larvae. Mm. Yeah. And a postdoctoral researcher in my lab, she's currently doing all the genetics. And it's very interesting because with the genetics, we also can test that. And we are finding that it varies per location a little bit. So some of the bays that are very enclosed, where kind of the currents getting close, it tends to be more, uh, you know, clonal. So it's kind of okay. the same fragments. Whereas in the other more open areas tend to be more sexually larvae attaching. So what we are now checking is if that larvae comes from the same populations or from far away. Right. So it's a very interesting how at the local level, each depending of the the location per se, the recruitment and the the reproduction and the resilience of the sponge population varies. Yeah, I mean that makes total sense though, mm-hmm. right? Environments are just better suited or easier to 
reproduce or attach, right? And then some just aren't. Yes. Yeah. Why some are one way or the other one is what is very interesting because then yeah. when you want to restore coral reefs, and mm-hmm. this could work also for coral larvae in some way because, you know, they also depend on the water currents, mm-hmm. then you might need to think how you will restore one location versus the other one. And not all the locations might need the same restoration tools, you mm-hmm. see? So understanding how locations vary and why, it's super important for defining what restoration method or protocol you might use. Yeah, that makes sense. Something else that you were looking at is white plague disease. Now, do sponges get white plague as well? I know corals do. Okay, that's interesting. So I did also that white plague started as a pulse doc and I finally got published and I was working with data that has been collected for five years from other colleagues and researchers. And I did all the data analysis to really understand what was going there. Yes. So sometimes this project is very interesting because this is a mesophotic reef. We had like over 13 stations and it was five years of people collecting data and, but they didn't have anybody that could analyze all the data. So this is where sometimes we scientists get stuck. Like you collect tons of data, but you don't have the physical power in terms of people that helps mm-hmm. do it. So I took all the data and analyzed it and put it together. And it was very, very interesting. But what we used was underwater cameras, mm-hmm. like GoPros, to evaluate the diseases on corals. That's so cool. You mentioned the mesophotic. So this is, we have shallow water reefs, which is what most people think of when they think of coral reefs, right? Like 30-ish feet of water. Mesophotic, what is it? 60 to 100-ish feet? Is that the range? Yes, they are 100 feet, 150 feet. So usually, yeah, they are below 40 meters, 45 meters, kind of 50, 60 meters okay mm-hmm. and there are different levels of the mesophotics this is the upper mesophotic which is the shallow mesophotic but mm-hmm. we have a much deeper mesophotic so there are different depths of the mesophotic but yes they are much deeper yeah corals there are more flattened and what we were trying to test was if these deeper corals were getting more or less of the white plague disease than the shallow corals and for our surprise we find out higher rates of the disease on the deeper reefs, on the mesophotic reefs than on the shallow ones. Mm-hmm. And there could be different reasons why, but it was absolutely interesting to see that it reached that depth to the disease. Yeah. Because the, the mesophotic reefs were considered to be like the refuge, you know, the reserve of the coral. If the shallow ones were dying, probably these mesophotic reefs could repopulate the shallow ones. But if the deep corals, the mesophotic corals are also being affected, that means then they might not be the refuge that uh, most researchers hypothesize or thought of. So that's why the paper is so important in, in that context and in our research. Yeah, and a couple of highlights from that paper. So, I mean, you said that the white plague disease increases in the mesophotic zone, and it also is high, like higher prevalence in the beginning of the rainy season, which makes sense because there's increased turbidity and temperature and decreased salinity and oxygen. Were contaminants measured as well? Because that's always, you know, the rainy season brings runoff, and there's all sorts of contaminants in that. 
we didn't measure any specific uh, pollutants or mm -hmm. contaminants in the yeah. water. We measure mostly the, the most common environmental variables, but one that was really, really interesting to me, and I, I rerun the analysis so many times, and I was like, I can't believe it's always the turbidity. So mm -hmm. in the discussion, we suggest there are different mechanisms. So one of them is that probably the pathogens that are affecting this disease, if present, they might associate it with the uh, like attached to the sand grains because turbidity is produced by different sand or different mm -hmm. kind of silky materials. Right. So turbidity for the audience really quickly is just kind of like the cloudiness of the water or clarity yes. of the water is another way yeah. to do that. But you're really measuring the, how well cloudy it is. Yeah. Yes. And it's like if you go into the ocean and you move too much your food and you, you basically lift all the sand from the bottom, it gets cloudy. Right. So that's what we call turbidity. But in the grains, in the little grains, there can be different bacteria attached. Mm -hmm. And it might be that when the turbidity is high, the bacteria is transferred to certain locations. So previous studies have shown that uh, there might be a pathogen for white plague and that it can be transferred by snails that move mm -hmm. from one coral to other one or by water. But they didn't know in the water by what in the water. So this paper shows that it's highly probably that it is the sand that mm. moves with it. So it's like turbidity in the water, the particles of sand might be carrying on the pathogen, but we still don't know what is the specific pathogen there. And mm. the discussion goes into it might be not just one, it could be several ones. It could be that the sand in some way just affect the microbiome in the, in the coral and disturb so much that it's kind of like your gut, you know, when your probiotics are not good in your gut and then you start feeling sick. So there are certain elements that maybe come there and then the microbiome, the different microbes that help the coral to stay healthy, shift. And when there is a shift on that, then the corals get the disease and then die. So there are suggestions of all certain possible pathogens but it's not consistent. So people cannot find always the same pathogen with the same disease with, for this mm. specific white plague. So yeah. that's why the whole discussion is about maybe is that it's like a microbiome change. Maybe the sun produced that, or maybe the sun is bringing the pathogen, but we are not able, once infects the coral for some reason, we are not detecting it at that point. There is a lot of controversy in the subject of coral diseases for that reason, and not every single disease. There are some where the pathogen is much clearer. Mm -hmm. There are other suggestions that this white plague disease pathogen is not bacterial, but instead is a virus. So it's much mm -hmm. harder to detect that virus, you know, and the action of that virus. Right, yeah. And I'm realizing that we didn't define white plague disease. So it's a coral disease. And I mean, we're very descriptive. Scientific community is very descriptive. So it's literally like big white patches that will like kind of just eat the coral from the outside in. Yeah. So so this specific white plague disease starts on the borders of the corals. Mm -hmm. And you can see that the coral tissue is very bleached, but the boundary is very, very clean. It's like you can see it like advancing and it can advance a couple of centimeters in a in couple of days. So it's very, very mm -hmm. quick. That is fast. One. And just going back to the question of sponges, if they get diseases, yes. But this white plague disease, exactly as it is in the 
corals. We don't see it in that way. So we have other diseases on sponges. We have the red band disease. Mm. So it's a red band that grows on the sponges. And then sometimes after that, it just bleach and fragments. And then the sponge kind of falls apart. Mm -hmm. We do have other white white rings or white patches, also like the orange or red are kind of similar. The barrel sponges tend to get these orange bands on the tissue and then it's like orange and white and then suddenly that part of the sponge just get disease and it just disappears, it just falls apart too. Mm. So there are different diseases, but simultaneously to that, it's very interesting because the sponges can filter a lot of water and there have been studies that find some of the microorganisms that are believed to be pathogens on corals, they have been found inside of the sponge tissue. So sponges mm. could trap them and have them in their tissue without necessarily getting sick. Right. So it's very interesting because when I ran all the analysis for the white plate disease paper, I found that the sponges, when we had higher levels of a sponge cover, those locations tended to have lower levels of the disease. Hmm. So it was one correlation or association that it was very interesting to find. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Ah, so crazy. <laughs> one question I did want to cover is what brought you back to Harbor Branch? I like that you kind of like had an internship there and kind of first taste of it. And then you worked with somebody that at Nova, they ended up that you had worked with previously at Harbor Branch or knew of previously at Harbor Branch. So how did you shift back to Harbor Branch? Yeah, that's that's very interesting. So after I finished my PhD, I did a couple of postdoctoral researchers. That is, for some right. people, I explain them, it's like when you become a doctor, medical doctor, and you go and do your residency in different hospitals and you get experience. So the postdoctoral researcher for a biologist or other kind of scientists that are not medical in the medical field is the same is that you go and do research in different areas and you gain more experience to become an independent researcher scientist as i was working i went to virgin islands mississippi i also work at nsu or nova um, my first postdoc i started submitting applications everywhere and my idea was initially to return to colombia that's i mentioned before i was like yeah. i want to go back I want to be a professor there, but then the opportunity never came. The amount of jobs opening were very, very narrow. And so I decided to open it to the whole world. I'm like, okay, I'm submitting applications anywhere in the world. And then I was like, you know what? I actually think I can probably stay here in the U.S. and use my, my knowledge and my abilities to really fulfill what I think is my purpose in life, which is if I'm going to be a professor and I'm going to teach and produce research, it doesn't matter where I'm going to be in the world as long as I do it. Mm -hmm. And also, I thought Florida would be the best scenario for me because it was closer to the Caribbean where most of my research is located. I also have family here and it's a highly diverse community. So mm -hmm. I was like, I probably could make a big impact being in Florida. So I started applying to Florida and every year I, I did a different setup of applications for <laughs> like four years four or five years. Yeah. You just have to keep in mind that these applications for any professor, system professor positions, it takes a whole year. It's a one year mm -hmm. cycle. Mm -hmm. So you submit and it gets a process, it gets reviewed and it's, it's long. So finally, in my, in my last applications, I target only Florida universities, <laughs> all of them from north to south. I was like, I'm going to stay in Florida. <laughs> 
and then I got to be interviewed by FAU. When I saw the posting for FAU, they immediately mentioned it was a joint appointment between the Honors College, FAU Honors College in Jupiter, and Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute. So when mm -hmm. I saw Harbor Branch, I'm like, oh my goodness, I would love to come back to Harbor Branch. You know, yeah. I was the summer intern there. I always loved what I did there. It, it changed in some way the pattern of my career. It, it encouraged me to go for my PhD. It was absolutely fantastic that three months I spent in Harbor Branch. And um, I was like, wow, it would be awesome to come back to Harbor Branch. And I always wanted to come back, but I always thought maybe I would be a PhD student or a postdoc. I never had in my mind that I would have come back as a, as a professor, but I was like, why not? <laughs> so I just submit my application and then I passed and I got the interview and I got the job. And I was like, man, some things are meant to be. Four years submitting applications, trying so hard to come back. Colombia and that was not the path for me it was mm -hmm. here so I I felt absolutely thankful blessed in some way happy to have the opportunity to come back to Harbor Branch and you know and to work at FAU in the sense that it's a very diverse community I teach at the Honors College and we have top students there coming to the Honors College from all Florida and from other states and it's a very diverse, very cosmopolitan. The faculty members are from everywhere in the world. And it's an amazing place to be, both the, the Honors College and Harbor Branch. So I have my lab at Harbor Branch and research, and I have graduate students in Harbor Branch. And then I have honors students in Jupiter, and also they come to the lab in Harbor Branch to work, to work with me. And it's complex in trying to manage two different <laughs> like kind of locations but at the same time it's so rich mm -hmm. it's like you just have to manage how much on each side you can give and you can manage it just working today fun enough you know when I came back and I chat with Shirley I was like well we have a chance again in life to work together and that's very very rare that you can have a mentor in your younger years as a student and come back as a PI and collaborate with your older mentor and do research together. Shirley hasn't retired yet, but she might be close to retirement. And I told her, you know what, we need to work together before that happens. Yeah. And um, so today we have a couple of projects together with the sponges. We join efforts to do research and it's been totally fantastic to have that opportunity to come back years later and work and do research and collaborate with your previous mentor. For me, that was like, wow, I never expected it will turn out that way, you know, but it was totally not planned. I will tell you most of the, the steps, as you can see in, in my life or how I have moved from one side to the other one were never planned specifically that it had to be that university or it had to be that program. No, I kind of put it like, okay, wherever I'm going to go, that's going to be right. <laughs> it's going to be the, the place. But it was never pointed out like that. Yeah, I really like that perspective of just like, we made a decision, I'm here now, like this is the right decision. Even if it doesn't work out, like coming here was the right decision. 
like your story in Alberta, you have, you've had, I mean, everybody has those serendipitous moments, but you've definitely had some like your experience in Alberta. And then you went to the conference and you met somebody at a lunch, right? And like, that was your serendipitous moment of coming back to Florida and like coming back to Harbor Branch. It's just interesting how that happened. So if you hadn't gone to Alberta and like been like, oh, this isn't right for me. You may not have made it back to Florida. Yeah. And I think that's was kind of, you know, like, when you all the time are trying to reach for perfection and doing the best you can, which is a lot in this society these days, then you feel that if you reject something, you are not perfect or you are not good enough. And I remember having this conversation with my mom when I was like, I have this scholarship, this opportunity in Canada and it's great, but I could feel in my heart that it was not right for me as a person. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that have defined my career a lot is that I knew always in my heart what was the right thing to do for myself, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. might be totally different for other people. And that sometimes it's not about reaching perfection or about saying yes to everything that comes to your path or about having to be in the top universities, top programs or top everything. It's mm -hmm. not about that. It's about what makes you happy in the process of doing that. And what can you get, what opportunities come to your door and why? And if you decide to take it, why you are taking it? Not just taking it because everybody's doing it, not just following because that's what the media tells me to do. Or I actually, because I feel guilty of not taking it or not being perfect because it's the top university and I want to be perfect. If I don't take that opportunity, it's not going to work. And I think a lot of the times society and media is blocking us from listening to ourselves and follow your own path. And so mm -hmm. I encourage my students every day. I tell them, do not try to be perfect because that doesn't exist in life. Perfection is relative. And it doesn't exist in life. What you try to do every day is the best that you can with the tools that you have. Mm -hmm. And you can be in a top university and you can be excellent. Of course, sometimes you have better tools, you might find better things. But sometimes if you don't try your best, you don't find that tools. Right. So it doesn't matter what college, what school you come from, what high school it doesn't matter if you are poor or rich. It doesn't matter where, if you come from the third world or the first world. What I have learned and what I try to give my students is that what it matters is what they want to do, what is their passion, what makes them happy, what are their choices, and what do you do with the choice that you have take. If you put effort every day into that choice, you're going to become somebody excellent, somebody that can fulfill themselves, but also society in a positive way and make a change. So that's what I do as a mentor and as a professor. I realize, you know, by my experience, which was very serendipitous in some ways, and I believe everybody's life is in that way. You just not don't realize how serendipitous can be, but it's like you make certain choices and life keep you throwing you back to others and you're like but why you know like what's just happening and then if you really pay attention to where you end up after all that choices you realize oh my goodness the door to my job and other things is just right there in front of me i just didn't see it before i tell my students you know when you're applying for jobs 
just don't give up. Just it's not about sending one application and get successful. And then if I don't get the specific job I wanted, then I'm not successful. I'm like, no, it's about keep looking for what you believe you should be. Okay. So it's building it up from a different point of view. I believe, yeah, I, I do believe that. I do believe that competition is not healthy in the sense of comparing yourself with others. Mm-hmm. But it's healthy in the sense that you can compete with yourself in the sense that what I'm doing today versus what I did last year or last week actually is taking me somewhere else or right. to to research or know something new. So, yeah. Creating more of the life that I picture for myself. Yeah, but it's yes. very unique for each person. So yes. that's why when we try to generalize the media or the looks or what society expects for everybody it makes people very unhappy because not everybody needs to fit that you know so that's what i think yeah makes total sense i have a few questions that i love to ask at the end of each episode and i'm going to start with what is your favorite sea creature and why (laughs) well i do love sponges now you know (laughs) excavating sponges my curiosity but I will tell you that besides the sponges, I love the blanket octopus. And ah. I had a little experience of seeing one juvenile blanket octopus in Australia once as I was coming up of a scuba dive. And it was that moment of like, wow. And since that day, I've been absolutely fascinated by that moment, by the, the little blanket octopus, which are very rare. They are not easy to to find. No, they're not. I thought they were more deep sea too. Yes, they are more deep sea. They are usually collected on fishermen nets, like deep sea fishermen nets. I don't even know what this one was doing there so shallow, Mm. but it's fantastic. And I was like, wow. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I love that. So kind of on the heels of that, what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be a wonderful day in the field, like collecting data and everything kind of went right. Or it could just be a day where things happened and it makes a really great story now. <laughs> I have a, I have a couple, but I will tell you two very quick. One is okay. the first time as an honors student that my advisors took me to San Andres Island to do my honors thesis. And I dove in San Andres Island's coral reefs. And at that time, these corals didn't have that much bleaching or diseases it was beautiful it was like Mm -hmm. fantasy world I dove in and there were so many things I had my moment of like I cannot breathe but it was like of how beautiful it was it was like really submerging yourself into the most beautiful garden dream of colors and Mm -hmm. perfect color waters that it took me a couple of minutes to settle my brain and start the work and <laughs> underwater, I was like, I can't believe where I am. I'm loving this. Absolutely. That feeling of like falling in love with the reef and what I was doing. So that's a beautiful moment. And then a little bit more recent as when I was in the Virgin Islands, we were doing this work on the effect of the hurricanes. And uh, there was one day field work in this beautiful bay, but after the hurricanes, it was really turbid, milky water. It was hard to do the research because you cannot see that well. 
And I had a couple of students that I had to guide to do the work. So I was taking care of like eight students at a time and I'm exhausted <laughs> and I cannot, I can see their bubbles around me and I'm checking on them as I'm doing my work. But that day specifically was raining, was cloudy, mm. was cold. We've been already two or two or three dives in the water, each dive close to two hours. So we are hitting the afternoon and it's like tiring. Yes. And on top of that, there was an issue on, on the island where a couple that was on the rocks was washed out by a wave and the girl oh. got lost. Oh so they gave us an announcement that we were scuba diving that area. If we will find a body that oh gosh. we should let them know. So we are all there like, oh, no. Please don't let me find a dead body. <laughs> but you have that situation and then... We are finishing most of the teams. We are sending them back and there was something to finish. So I stayed with two students, two of the best students. And as we are doing our, <laughs> we are doing our resting time in a little Zodiac. It's raining, raining, raining. And we're freezing, even that it's warm. Right. If you're already wet and it's raining. Yeah. So we are looking at each other and then one of these students who was fantastic, like a top student and loves to be in the water, like the two of them, there was no way you could take them out of the water. And she looked at me and she said, Andia, do we really need to get in the water again? <laughs> they looked like they wanted to cry, both of them. And I look at them and I'm like, hey, girls, I want to cry too. I'm exhausted. It's tiring. We just need to do one more thing and we will finish. We are going to stay close together and we have to do the job because then people think that being a marine biologist is just being underwater, having fun or being outside. But no, when you're doing a job, you have to finish the job. Right. But the issue was mostly that it was turbid and the three of us, we didn't want to find the body. You know? right. So it was all of that, but it's, it's an interesting story and we did it and we finished and we got it done and we were like, yes, we did it. But yes. it's, it's just that kind of stories that. <laughs> yes. I like to highlight those stories because yeah, like you mentioned, a lot of people are like, oh, like marine biology, if you dive, oh, you're in like crystal clear, perfect water. I'm like, no, not usually. Right. <laughs> I told you my first time that was beautiful, Clister, and these times and these days I, I do a lot of scuba diving in the Indian River Lagoon, which oh. is an estuary. It has its moments, so you you need to know when to get there, when the tide is the best, and even with that visibility is not the best. No. But it's a fantastic world there too. You put the students to test, like really, you really like this because it's not everything blue waters and it's perfect. Right. You have to be mentally focused. You have to be physically fit and you need to really be able to just pass from the first dive because, you know, when you are relaxing or doing tourists, you do one dive, two dives, you don't have, you're just looking at things. When you're underwater, you have tasks. So it's like the astronauts when they go out, you have tasks and you have to be super focused to fulfill the tasks that you need in the time that you have. You have to, you have the time, you have the air, you have to control not just your diving equipment, but your working environment there. Mm -hmm. so, so it's different. It is different. Yeah, it's a good point. And, you know, you're in the Caribbean coming from Florida, so it's not like you could be like, oh, we'll just come back out next week when it's nicer. Like, you just no. have to get it done. Yeah. <laughs> and, and sometimes it's the opposite. You need to know, you know, safety goes first. And right. you have several of the students working with you or you are the student 
And if there are storms and other things, you have to abort missions halfway and you just have to be very quick, smart into, okay, it's my time. I have to pick up this. I have here equipment that is very expensive. What do we do? We leave it. We take it. You know, a lot right. of quick decisions underwater also. So for me, it has that excitement of not knowing what is going to happen, which I love. Mm. It's like exploration through exploration. Yeah. And at the same time, it has the stress of like being taken care of everything around <laughs> right right that's true too so if you were given a blank check and unlimited funding what project or projects up to three would you want to fund okay i think i definitely will use it to restore coral reefs and i will do it with three different parts or in three sections the first one is I would love to, to put some funding into doing research to better understand how the interaction of organisms in the reefs can be used to create more habitat mm -hmm. and apply that for restoration. Because currently, a lot of the restoration is done by single species of corals and they retouch, but then the storms come and they are taken away or diseases come and they are taken away. So... I wanted to, to think of restoration alternatives that are more uh, with multiple organisms. Yeah. And together with that, I would love to find mechanisms to eliminate local sewage pollution, mm -hmm. especially in islands or in countries where they don't have the fundings to do that. So sometimes it goes directly to the ocean from the houses into the ocean. So how can we improve that and also support policy making in that locations. Uh, so I will invest some of the money in these policy making situations and how to support cleanup because even that global warming is affecting in overall coral reefs, the local input of pollution sometimes increase the susceptibility of that reef even higher. So if we reduce the local pressure, the reefs will have higher probability of survival. But if you if you add more pollution, then you are just giving the reefs too many too many stressors. They yeah, overcome. stressors exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then the other part will be through education at different levels in communities, but specifically also to tourists. It's really interesting that when people when it's their local reefs, they tend to protect them more. But when mm -hmm. the people travel around and tourists around, they don't care that much because mm -hmm. they are living. Mm -hmm. I would like to think like how can we really educate the tourism around coral reefs and around the, the world and I would say like if I have all of this money I will invest some into that too <laughs> why not you know we need it and it's it's important yeah I agree education is key and making people care about what you love right so if you can make people like love it and appreciate yeah. it yeah but it's also about uh, opening their minds that what is happening here is not just here. It's going mm. to affect the ecosystem in a much broader level. The Florida reefs are not alone. The populations of the Florida reefs, all the organisms connect with populations in other areas in the Caribbean, right. especially fish and very highly mobile organisms. So understanding what the need for habitat in all of these locations around the Caribbean and the Atlantic it's like the whole Caribbean is connected in some way. Mm -hmm. So bringing that kind of education that if you destroy something south in the Caribbean, it's going to affect in some way what you have here. 
and having a much global mindset in through the conservation issues. Yeah, that makes sense too. Like we just talked about with the currents, right? Mm -hmm. It really truly does impact from far away. Yes. I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world. What would you like my audience to take from your episode today? Okay, so I think one important aspect is to be mindful of what you put in the water, in your mm-hmm. waste water. What detergents do you use? Are you adding nutrients or not? That's one thing. And then, yes, when you travel and when you are at home, are you impacting the environment or not? And in which way? Just being more mindful of your own effect on the environment instead of like blaming it to the people doing that. It's like, can we be more mindful of what we do? But also, can we translate that mindfulness to others that do not understand why or that their life and their pressures in life are so much more that for them thinking in the environment is not a priority because we also need to be mindful of that like when people don't have food or shelter Mm -hmm. the last thing they are going to think is on the environment their priority for them is food and surviving so how can we improve the mindset the mindset of everybody understanding where they are coming from right and i think that's that's a very important point of view for us to be able to protect the reefs and then the last thing is that just want to tell the audience that in the coral reefs in florida and the caribbean the majority of bright organisms that they see attached that you see attached to the bottom are not corals are actually (laughs) sponges and that's kind of one little fact a lot of people think they are all corals but actually majority of caribbean coral reefs in florida are made of like on top of the coral structure are sponges i love it we were chatting a little bit before you know the fish fish don't eat the sponges like they eat the corals right we know parrotfish eat corals or at least algae on top of the corals but you were mentioning earlier like fish don't eat the sponges because they have some sort of chemical defense or some of them have um, skeletons that have like glass structures and these little spines what are they what do you call them spickles spickles yes yeah they have their own little defense and yes. they look beautiful um, but they act totally different than corals too yes and there are some that have the defenses and there are other ones that not so the fish preferences for sponges because they are spongivores they are fish that eat on sponges and feed on sponges mm-hmm. sponges are important also as a food but that depends on uh, what chemical defenses the sponge have and how big are their skeletons, their speckles around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes total sense. And then one other thing that you kind of touched on was that sponges kind of clean up and serve as habitat and they also kind of compete for a space on corals. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so sponges have different ecological benefits to the environment. And they do not only, first, they don't only live on reefs. Sponges are found from the Arctic to the Antarctic, all temperate, all, all temperatures and different depths. So they, the range of distribution is bigger than the corals. And the functional roles on reefs are one of them, they serve as filters, they serve as the lungs of the ocean. So they filter a lot of chemicals and particles that then they can in some way digest into their bodies. They also filter a lot of microbes and they can in some way digest them, eat them, feed on microbes. And also they keep some of the microbes inside their cells. They have like a microbiome growing. Again, that idea of your stomach full of 
of microbes the sponges have that in their bodies. The other aspect is that they are important habitat for organisms. So, for example, currently we are building a sponge nursery at Harbour Branch, Shirley Pampani and I, and we are trying to grow sponges to restore a habitats on Florida Bay that are mm. lobster habitats. So there are a lot of the lobsters in the Florida Keys, they hide under sponges. And if the sponges died or are removed, the lobsters lose their habitat. And then during lobster season, you don't find as many lobsters. So they are very important habitat for lobsters, for fish, for other invertebrates, crustaceans like little crabs and um, other food sources for us. So they are super important for that. And then the other very interesting aspect is that because they produce chemical defenses, a lot of the metabolites, chemicals they produce can be used as pharmaceutics. There are a lot of new metabolites, like diversity of metabolites and chemicals that haven't been described or found. And a lot of chemists, they focus on isolating these metabolites from sponges because they are new to science. And they also use them to test for possible drugs for anti-cancer and for antivirals. Currently, there are two drugs, one anti-cancer drug and one anti-HIV drug that derived from sponges and that are used for treatment. So that is the other side of the sponges that is more biotechnology or pharmaceutical Right. That's a lot what uh, Shirley studies as well, yes. right? Yes. So, yeah. so Shirley focuses more on, on that biotechnology aspects. I focus mostly on the ecological aspects and um, the populations, the growth, the dispersals, and how much they can serve as a habitat to maintain coral reefs, biodiversity, and structure, you know, because if all corals died and there is not habitat there, or if most corals, as they are dying, then where the fish is going, like, are we losing all the fish? Are we losing all that diversity? It's important to understand how coral reefs are shifting, how the structure was maybe more coral dominated at some point. In the Caribbean Sea, there's been always more sponges, but it's been shifting through the years or through centuries. And as we apply more stressors to the reefs, it continued to change. But my question is how much is changing, but also who is surviving and whoever is surviving, could, could that maintain that diversity or not? And how much? That's some of the questions that are important, but sponges have several, several roles in the health of the oceans in some way. And also they are a source for us to probably discover new compounds and pharmaceutics uh, for the future. Yeah, love it. If listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and or your research, where's the best place to do so? You can send me an email. My email is andia.chavez at fau.edu. So it's A-N-D-I-A dot C-H-A-V-E-S at fau.edu. That's probably the easiest way. I would be happy to answer, you know, any questions. Awesome. And I'll put a link to that as well as your website on the show notes for today's episode. Andia, thank you so much for being on the show today. I had so much fun chatting sponges with you. Thank you, Cara. You have a lovely day. This episode is brought to you by Florida Atlantic University's Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute. 2021 marks the 50th anniversary of FAU Harbor Branch's relentless pursuit of ocean science for a better world. Located in Fort Pierce, Florida, FAU Harbor Branch's cutting-edge research focuses on five major areas, 
marine ecosystem conservation, aquaculture, the connection between ocean and human health, technological innovation, and national defense. During my time at Harbor Branch as part of the undergraduate Semester by the Sea program, I learned so much about the ocean and what it takes to become a good scientist. The programs and opportunities offered at Harbor Branch have continued to swell since. To learn more and how you can get involved, please visit fau.edu slash hboi. That's fau.edu slash hboi. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.